0: and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. I am so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today I am honored to be joined by Jessica Nordell to talk with her about her a recent book. It was a re-released book in, in paperback form, but her book, The End of Bias, A Beginning. And the subtitle is How We Eliminate Unconscious Bias and Create a More Just World. Now, if this is your first time listening to The Learner's Corner, I do want to tell you about a couple of things which inform pretty much everything that we do here on the podcast. And the first one is this, is that we uh, want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. We also believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them 100%. We believe that we can learn from anything and from everything, whether that's something serious or something trivial. And we want to be the person who was there for us, or we want to be the person that we wish had been there for us, the mentor that we had or the mentor that we wish that we had. Now, today's conversation is going to focus on really creating that safe place to have a difficult conversation, to have difficult conversations, you know, anytime that you get into to bias or racism or sexism or just any type of uh, discrimination, Sometimes those can be very tricky conversations because people are being afri- people are just afraid of being called racist or sexist or or anything like that. And we're going to talk about how doing how do we better engage in those types of conversations. And the other one is this is that it helps us be the person that was there for us or the person that we wish that we had. Because we want to pass that on. We want to be there for the next generation. And choosing to deal with these topics and engaging in these topics to how we be there for the next generation of helping us sort through them as well and thinking through them so that we can help other people think and sort through them as well and be a be a sounding board for them now if you enjoyed this conversation or you've been listening for a while or you just find yourself as a lifelong learner One of the best things that you could do to continue that pursuit of lifelong learning is subscribing to my newsletter, where I give you all the things that I'm thinking about right now. All the things that are coming across, you know, as I am, you know, going through Twitter, going through social media, as I'm reading articles, books, all of that stuff. I just basically curate a list of some of the best things that I am currently learning from the things that are capturing my imagination and some of the things that I am enjoying as well. And I send that out each and every single week, and it can be yours for free. All you have to do is subscribe to my newsletter, which you can find in the show notes. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Jessica, and then we're going to go right into our conversation. So, Jessica Nordell is a journalist and author known for blending rigorous science with compassionate humanity. Her first book, The End of Bias, A Beginning explores approaches that have been shown to change people's behavior to become less discriminatory and more humane. The book has won the Nautilus Award and was a finalist for the Columbia Lucas Prize for Excellence in Nonfiction and won the NYPL Bernstein Award for Excellence in Journalism. And uh it, as you can tell, it has just received so many so many awards it has also been endorsed by adam grant who if you're not familiar with for me is basically if adam grant endorses the book and he has great things to say about this and it is a book worth picking up and so without any further wait here is my conversation with jessica nordell Well, Jessica, it's so good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah. And just as we're getting started, you know, you've written this book called The End of Bias, which I is a, is a very intriguing title to the <laughs> book as as well, because it's such a big topic and we're going to dive into that a little bit. But usually I love just asking people, where did their fascination start with the topic of their book? And so, I would just love to hear from you. Where did this journey of of learning about bias begin for you?
1: You know, I let's see. that's a it's a good question. i I think that my, you know, my life had involved experiences of of bias and discrimination um like our like all of ours do, frankly, I think we all you know experience this to some extent. In our, in our growing up, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. But I think it really kind of came into focus for me when I was starting out in my career as a journalist. Okay. I um, had an experience where I was pitching a story to editors who I didn't know. So it was like a cold, what, what we call in, the, in journalism, a cold query or a cold pitch. It was just, you know, sending an email to an editor to see if they would be interested in a particular story. And I had a, a one story that I was sending out and I was sending out and I was sending out and I wasn't hearing anything back. Nobody was responding. It was just radio silence. And in this kind of like moment of desperation, I sent out the same letter, but using a man's name. Mm-hmm. Um, I sent it using, well, or I sent it using initials, JD Nordell instead of Jessica, which I thought, you know, may, might sound kind of more yeah. masculine. And that piece was accepted within a couple of hours. And it was the same piece. you know, it was the same letter. It was just with a you know different email address, different um, name on the byline. And so that, I would say is probably the moment that I really started thinking, huh, I wonder what's going on here? Like what is it in the mind of the editor that is, you know, leading them toward accepting something from JD but not responding to Jessica? I would say that's where my fascination began.
0: Yeah, and so then did you just start like in- investigating that more? Or what did that look like?
1: Yeah, you know, I started looking at it as a journalist, really trying to understand this phenomenon. And I, I was really interested in the kind of everyday bias that we experience that isn't really overt and it's not really egregious. It's not like someone's coming out and saying something that's like really racist or really sexist or really, Mm -hmm. you know, homophobic or something. Um, But, but it comes out in these different subtle ways, like in the way maybe we feel in a situation or how close we want to sit next to somebody on a bus or, you know, like these kind of more subtle ways. That's what I started getting really interested in and started looking at as a journalist
0: Mm. you you have this quote towards the back of the book which by the way the book in itself is is so good and then like that final chapter i'm like oh my goodness, you just put, like I'm underline like I basically, I think I underlined it the entire like last chapter. Of oh my that. gosh. <laughs> um, but you say something in there that I want to touch on a little bit, which dives into this this fascination with bias and learning about it. You say, when I began this book, I thought I was writing a work of science. Talk to me about that mindset at the beginning of that, that science mindset that you were talking about. And then mm. even what made you shift to to a different mindset?
1: mm. I, you know, I set out thinking I was writing a book of science journalism. My plan going into this project was to look for approaches that had changed people's behavior. That was really like the quest I was on in writing this book, because there are a lot of books out there about bias and how it works and, you know, why it's a problem. But what I was curious about was, okay, what do we do about it? Like what actually changes people's minds and hearts? if it's, is it possible to change people's minds and hearts? And if so, like, how do we get there? How do we actually interrupt these patterns that are so harmful to one another? And so I thought, okay, I'm going to do all of my investigation. I'm a science journalist. I'm just going to dig deep into the research and I'm going to serve it up to the reader so they can use it. So they have a tool and a guidebook, you know, and what I found was that the process became very personal Mm -hmm. in an, in kind of an unexpected way because I was forced through the writing of this book to really face what was in my own heart Mm -hmm. and my my own mind and look at things that I hadn't really looked at very closely before.
0: Mm. Can you talk to me about one of those examples?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Gosh, there's so many, you know, sometimes people, people ask, do you you have any of the biases yourself that you write about in the book? And like, the answer is yes, all of them, all of them, you know, because we live in a culture that is constantly giving us information about different social groups, including the ones that we belong to. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a woman and I have internalized false ideas about women, you know, that I have to fight against. One of the, you know, one of the stories um, that I you know, that, that was embarrassing, honestly, to, to share, but, um, was, was true was when I was, uh, when I was working on the book at one point, I, you know, early, early in the process, I was working in a library. It was a very quiet library. And I saw two men walk by me who walked to the end of the library and they got out some prayer rugs and kneeled down in the library and and began to pray Mm -hmm. um and i felt my hands start to get sweaty i felt this like instinctive fear response because i saw people that i registered as muslim yeah and while my hands were sweat you know I felt this sweat you know on my hands and I started to feel nervous simultaneously I thought what is going on like intellectually I I don't have anything to be afraid of but it was I had absorbed this connection between this that the, is the religion of Islam and danger or fear or you know the unknown and it created this like automatic um feeling of threat in me mm-hmm. which was Really shocking to to notice. Mm -hmm.
0: What's helped you, like in the moments to wherever you you have something like that happen, and you like it 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 ding your conscious lights up or things in your mind, and you go, oh, like I I do have a bias towards that person. What what do you do next, or what have what have you seen in in your own life through the research, all
1: that stuff? Oh my gosh, that that is such a great question. You know, the first thing that that's been really helpful for me is noticing when it's happening, because mm-hmm. one of the challenges with unconscious bias or unexamined bias is that sometimes it happens so quickly that it can influence our behavior without us even realizing that it's happening. Yeah. I mean, like that editor I was sharing, you know, that story with the editor. I don't think that editor had any conscious awareness yeah. that he was responding to JD and not responding to Jessica. It was like an instant. And so I think the first, you know, one thing that's been really helpful for me is slowing down in a scenario, in a situation, and really just noticing what's happening, noticing the thoughts that are coming up, the expectations, the predictions, and then starting to interrogate them like, mm-hmm. huh, okay, I noticed that I'm expecting this particular behavior from this particular person. Interesting what's going on is is there information that's actually supporting that or is that just like my imagination running wild you know and starting to actually question it in the moment um i find to be very helpful asking oneself questions asking other people questions just having this kind of open-minded you know spirit of curiosity rather than assuming that we all always know exactly what's about to happen
0: Mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier like noticing like your sweaty palms Is there anything else that you look for that's like, oh, okay, something is like my, either my body is telling me something or just something is communicating that I am, I am uncomfortable, which, which can be a sign of bias.
1: Yeah. Um, Oh, gosh, any sign of discomfort, you know, Mm -hmm. we, sometimes we feel, you know, a tightness internally, tightness in the chest or tightness in, you know, the muscles. Um, We, you know, I think one thing um one way that bias manifests is discomfort another is i think dismissal of another person Mm -hmm. um assuming that another person doesn't have something of value to offer and that can come about um you know we can notice that we might be paying more attention to what person a is saying than person b or maybe we feel more comfortable interrupting person b than person a and so that's an, another example where I think slowing mm-hmm. down and really just trying to really see what's actually happening can be really helpful. Mm.
0: That's good. I love the the discomfort and the dismissal as as a sign for. It. I want to go back to um, what you mentioned of uh, of the um, of the gentleman who rejected you first with your name uh, yeah. because that and you talk you touch about this in the book and I feel like you you helped me understand a concept that was always perplexing to me and it's this idea of you know when someone says well i'm i'm not racist i'm not sexist i'm not homophobic or anything and they don't they don't say anything um overtly like that however their actions still communicate that can you talk about that like explaining that inconsistency because that was such like an eye-opener to me
1: i'm so glad yeah you know if you ask people if they believe in equality, people typically say yes. You know, mm-hmm. if you ask people if they believe people should be treated fairly, they usually say, Yeah, of course people should be treated fairly. But what we see is that if you if you observe their behavior, you see something different. You see something that conflicts with that value, those stated values. And you know, the way that we think about it when you know, in the, so, so unconscious bias is sort of a, a way of trying to understand that paradox, which is that people might say they have certain values and really believe in those values, but then behave in ways that are totally not aligned with those values. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, what's happening with this concept of unconscious bias is that we, we absorb so many ideas about social groups, just as a, byproduct of living in a culture and and th- all of those ideas live in our memory you know ideas about different genders different racial groups different ethnic groups religious groups we absorb it just because it's in the air it's in the culture all the time mm-hmm. and then when we encounter a person who belongs to one of those groups one of those categories all of that information those stereotypes or beliefs or associations that we've stored in our memory start to kind of come to the forefront and influence that interaction. And it can happen without us really realizing it's happening. And really importantly, it, it can conflict with that value of really wanting to treat people well and with humanity and with justice. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it almost like the And this may not be like a great analogy for it, but in terms of like habit formation that is unconsciously forming, it reminded me of like sometimes what our phones can do. <laughs>
1: say more yeah
0: yeah well we even just like you know through advertising on that through social media and like we want to say oh hey like i i want to spend more time with my family i want to spend more time with my friends however that that doesn't always happen because we find ourselves addicted to our phones and it reminded me just a very similar thing of like there's just a there there can be things that are influencing us to um to keep us from living out our values
1: yes absolutely Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, uh, I I want to ask you what are what was um, some of I know that you mainly in the book focus on um, racism and then sexism as well pri- primarily um, I would love to touch on what are some of the other biases that you discovered in this to yeah. where it was like oh I you know that is that is a bias either that I hold or I didn't think about can be one absolutely.
1: So many. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, one is uh bias um regarding age, ageism. The I mean, in in our culture, it's almost, you know, I think kind of mocking or making fun of older people is almost still kind of an acceptable thing to do. It's um an acceptable form of prejudice in in some in in, in that you know people will joke about age in -hmm. a way that they won't joke about some of these other identities and that is that's a really interesting um form of bias because if we're if we're you know if we're lucky enough to live into old age we're all going to experience that that's going to be a universal one and in fact you know one one interesting insight that um that i discovered in in doing this research is that for for people who have more of a privileged kind of position in society just through accident of birth, um, sometimes ageism is the first time they've really experienced prejudice. And so it's sort of this light bulb moment sometimes um, for people who haven't experienced it so much before. You know, another kind of bias that I think is really important to think about is um, has to do with weight. Mm-hmm. There's um, a lot of anti-fat bias in our culture and in our medical system. And that's a really important one. Um, Stigma around mental distress, what we think of as mental illness is another really big one. So there are are many, yeah, I mean, my book focuses primarily on approaches that reduce race and gender related biases, but there are so many others that are important too. Well, and I think,
0: so again, this is just me, you know, making the leap here. So many of your practices I think could help with the other Yes. you know, uh, discriminate the other discrimination too.
1: Yes. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the approaches that I, that I explore are really kind of approaches that, that could apply to any, any group. Cause it's yeah. really about trying to, trying to get at kind of the underlying mechanics of like what's yeah. going on in this interpersonal react, you know, interpersonal interaction that we have.
0: Yeah. I'm curious You know, because I I imagine on on your journey to learning about this, there were several times to where there were just aha moments or like game changer moments, like the one that I just mentioned for me. Do you remember like what was, and again, this is a big question, so you may not, you may not know, you may not remember, (laughs) um, but do you remember what was like one of the first pieces of information or research that you discovered? And it was like a, wow, I had never thought that, you know, bias played out this way or that bias could be overcome um or or um impacted through this.
1: Oh my gosh. I mean, I think that the the whole process was like a series of these sorts of yeah. aha yeah. moments. Then, I mean, then you could just choose one. Just choose one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean definitely like the that sort of cycle that I described earlier about absorbing absorbing cultural stereotypes, storing them in our memory, and then having them start to leak out into our interpersonal interactions. And sort of the way that that almost cycle or circuit happens was a big Mm -hmm. aha. Like that, just thinking of it as a sequence was really helpful for me um, in order to understand this phenomenon that, plays a role in so many different kinds of interactions. It's, it's sort of fundamental. I think the aha for me was like, Oh, okay. It's a, it, there's like a fundamental thing happening, whether we're talking about racism, sexism, you know, homophobia, age discrimination, it's this fundamental cycle that's happening. So that was a big aha Mm -hmm. for me. And certainly just learning deeply about, um, Learning deeply about different approaches that actually change people's behavior was really incredible as well.
0: Okay, so there's a couple things there that I want to dig down <laughs>
1: Great. into. Great.
0: So you mentioned the stereotypes. So t- talk to me about what do you do whenever you realize, oh, I I do have this stereotype in my mind. It has been ingratiated in my mind. I realize that this is what's coming out. What do you do then?
1: mm Hmm. So once you realize it, there are a bunch of different things that you can do. I mean, that's sort of what the entire book is about is like, okay, what do we do next? Like, what's the next? So, um, so, so I'll give you just a couple of examples. So one is to like, say you and I are interacting and I notice that I have some stereotype about you, whatever that may be. And what one way that that might come out is I might, say to myself, well, Caleb is doing X, Y, or Z because he's such and such kind of person. That's what's, and and I make a little story in my head about that, right? Mm -hmm. So so what another approach that can start to dissolve these sorts of biases is to to, to say to myself, huh, I wonder if there's maybe a situational reason that's Mm -hmm. causing that behavior. Maybe it it's not some kind of fundamental character trait that he has because he belongs to a group. But could there be a situational reason, you know, say he shows up, say, say you show up late um, and I make up a story about why that is. Well, I could then start to interrogate that story a little bit and say, huh, well, could it be that, you know, maybe he has a sick child or maybe, you know, there was some family crisis or something that happened. Um, so starting to imagine situational reasons for a person's behavior is is really helpful. Hmm. Another thing that we can do is try to imagine the situation from the other person's perspective. And that's really hard because we're so, you know, we're often yeah. so self-absorbed. you know, I include myself in this. We're so wrapped up in our own view of things and our own way of seeing the world. Yeah, but if we can just pause long enough to try to see the situation from someone else's perspective, that can open up some empathy and open up some understanding that starts to soften some of those biased instincts and biased reactions as well.
0: Yeah. Another one that came to mind that I would love for you to talk about. And again, this was, man, this was just another like big, like aha moment for me. And um, I'm going to try to remember, and maybe you can help me out with it is it's this, uh, this study that showed like the, 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 The less familiar, I think, police officers were with people in the community, the more that all people of a certain people group just looked this like looked the same to them. Can you talk about that? Kind of like that study and that strategy as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one. Absolutely. I think this is so, so critical. So one of the things that happens sort of on a, on a neuro, on a neuroscience level and also just on an interpersonal level is that we see our own group our our own social identity group as being really diverse within that group like mm-hmm. i know that within my particular group people are really different from one another they're all sorts of different kinds of people you can't really make a blanket blanket statement about my group but there's this thing that happens where when we look at the other group that we don't belong to we we see that group as being kind of all the same like there everyone in that group is sort of similar it's called the technical term is outgroup homogeneity mm-hmm. like the group that we don't belong to is all homogenous and we kind of see it as monolithic and so one of the one of there's so many problems with this obviously like one of the problems is that it's just not true. Like yeah. that group is just as diverse within itself as, our, as my group. So we're not really seeing reality, but it can have all of these kind of consequences. So um, in the case of police, for instance, there was one group uh, that I, there was one, sorry, there was one story I looked at, which was the story of this pilot program that was started in the neighborhood of Watts in Los Angeles. And there were a lot of there was just massive mistrust between the police and the community and, you know, continues to this day to be a challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of mistrust because of some serious historical injustices and, um, you know, just the history of racism in this country and, and police community relations. And one of the ways that this came out was that police saw everyone in the community. As either a perpetrator or a victim. Mm-hmm. So they had this very kind of homogenizing, you know, view of the community. Like everyone is either one of these two groups. They didn't really know the community that well. And so what so there's this incredible um approach that was tried that I I, I spend a lot of time talking about in the book that um just briefly basically involved the police developing close, meaningful relationships and trusting relationships with the community through a whole bunch of different means, different approaches. And what happened as a result of this was that the police and the community started to see each other in more complex ways. The police started to see that within this community that they had first thought, oh, this is perpetrators and victims. They suddenly now saw community leaders elders, community partners, um, teachers, parents, children, like all of these different kinds of people that had been before just sort of categorized as one of two groups. But I'm actually realizing, Caleb, that you were asking, were you asking about vision? Actually, you were asking more about like actually seeing and distinguishing people.
0: Even that too, but I love the previous part. But yeah, if you want to touch on like the, like, and again, I may not be remembering it correctly. So if if I'm not, just let me know. But I, re- I think I remember them saying like, like all black people started looking the same to them.
1: Yeah. So, so there's this, there's this phenomenon that happens and this has been found in lots of different parts of the world and with lots of different racial groups, mm-hmm. which is that when, When a person has little interaction with people of a different racial or ethnic group, there's something called the cross-race effect, which means that it's more difficult to distinguish visually Mm -hmm. among people of that group. So, um, for instance, a friend of mine who was white, who lived in China for many years, had the experience of being confused for other white people all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a there's a a really interesting study that looks at um, Korean adults who either were raised and and born and raised and lived in Korea or were born in Korea but then adopted by white European parents, and they looked at this cross race effect and they found that even Korean adults who had been raised by white european parents in outside of korea had more difficulty distinguishing among korean faces mm-hmm. than adult koreans who were who were raised in korea so there's so there's this sort of familiarity that's required in order to really have enough kind of neural resources yeah. to be able to really make those distinctions and that is that that definitely can happen in um, police community relations as well if mm-hmm. if police are white and have not had um, a lot of experience or a lot of you know community relationships with with people of other racial or ethnic groups we can have that cross-race effect happen there as well
0: yeah well i think the um like you, you mentioned the police in there and that that is important i think one of the things that i think can be attempted and again i think it's like not just at like a conversation like this. I think it's in most conversations to go. It's them that need to change. And again, in some cases, they probably do need to change. Mm-hmm. But it's like we can we can ignore. I think sometimes it could be easy to go like, "Yep, the police are very biased," and almost use that as like a distraction or a buffer
1: mm-hmm. to
0: to force us not to confront our own bias in that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you do you see that dynamic playing out? Not necessarily just with police, but mm-hmm. with you know so-and-so is much more racist than... The, the, absolutely, yeah.
1: absolutely, Caleb. because we all want to feel like we're good people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think the reason that this can be such a difficult topic for, for folks to talk about is that we feel sometimes like if we start to admit or acknowledge that we have these reactions, we we feel like this means we're a bad person and we're going to be ostracized Mm -hmm. and feeling excluded from a group is one of the most painful experiences a person can have. So I think that defensiveness sometimes comes from just this terror of being ostracized for, 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 for other, because other people think that one is sexist or racist or, you know, whatever the case may be, but absolutely like we, I mean, I totally put myself in this category. You know, I went into this project thinking, I'm probably a little less biased than everyone else,
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm probably you know I might have a little bit of bias, but it's not I'm sure it's not as bad as everybody else, yeah, in fact, there's one study that found that ninety percent of people think they are more objective than average <laughs> <laughs> oh. we all think we're, above, we're yeah. we all think we're above average
0: yeah uh. Yeah, well and it even just makes me think of like self-awareness as well. And it's like the most self-aware people realize that they have a long way to go in that. Yes. Mm. Uh so one another thing I want to ask you about, and something that has been talked about um a lot particularly since, you know, spring of twenty twenty, since uh George Floyd was murdered, is diversity training as mm-hmm. well. And I would love to ask you, uh, what are some of the things in just diversity training or just training in general um, that we would say, yep, this is an avenue that we would say works. But when the research plays it out, when we see the results, it actually does not work as well as what Mm. we may think or hope that it works. Mm.
1: Yeah, that is that's really important. You know, I think. some so there, there's some, there's some research that looked at. Oh gosh, I don't even know where to start. This is a huge. We could have a whole hour just yeah, about yeah, this yeah. topic, Caleb. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the, one of the big challenges when when we look at diversity training or bias, anti-bias training or anti-racism training, is that, it's often, not evaluated. So there's sort of all of these trainings that are floating out there that are being used, that are being, you know, trialed in organizations and that don't really have evidence behind them to show that they accomplish what they are trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. So I would say, you know, one of the big challenges that is that we actually just don't know, you know, they could be making things better. They could be making things worse. They could be leaving things the same, we often just don't know because they're not evaluated. When they're evaluated, it's often, you know, in the form of like a survey that goes out at the end of the training that asks questions like, you know, did you enjoy this training? Do you feel like you learned something? And those are important, but it doesn't necessarily get at the behavior change, which is what ideally these are aiming for. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, there's some research that suggests that when diversity trainings are mandatory, that can cause backlash. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know, I I sympathize with how challenging of a situation this is. like, okay, if they're mandatory, they cause backlash. but if if they're not mandatory, then maybe the people who need it the most don't go. I mean, this is a real yeah. tension. this yeah. is a real challenge. Um you know, there's some uh, there's some research that shows that instituting things like performance ratings, can can have um can can have an unintendedly negative effect because sometimes performance ratings can be really subjective and can replicate the bias of the person who's giving the performance rating. Mm-hmm. That can be a challenge. Um there is, you know, some research that suggests that you know one approach that seems like it should be really promising, which is giving people like a job test before they get a job to see if they can do the work or not and maybe do that with, you know, taking the applicant's name away from the results. So you're just looking at the objective Mm -hmm. results of this test. That seems like it should be a a really useful approach. And it could be, but there's some research that shows that, uh, that sometimes managers will just overlook the results of the test and choose their favored candidate anyway. So they're, you know, these are, it's real, these are really sticky problems. They're really, really challenging. And I, yeah, so um, I think we, you know, we just need to keep our eyes open and, and pay attention to what's actually happening.
0: Yeah, what, what might be like a good like first step that you would say for training that someone that you would say or feel pretty confident about going like, hey, if you are wanting to make, um, if you're wanting to do some type of diversity training, and later I do want to talk about inclusion as well too. That was a very fascinating piece of the book. Um, but if you're wanting to make a, a productive and healthy step for training what would you recommend
1: you know i'm gonna i'm gonna suggest something that is gonna be make some kind of strange Mm -hmm. (laughs) i i actually i actually think that studying history yeah could be the most significant intervention that that could happen yeah in terms of first day training and i'll tell you why there's there's some research that looks at something called the Marley hypothesis, which is named after Bob Marley, um, who who sang in Buffalo Soldier. I think the lyric is, "If you don't know your history, you don't know where you're coming from." Mm-hmm. And what what these studies have have found is that the more people really understand the discrimination of the past, the better they are able to see and and really recognize the discrimination of the present. Mm-hmm. And I think that because it becomes undeniable, I mean, this is something that happened to me personally when I was going deeply into the history of racial discrimination in this country, for instance. The more I really, really understood how deeply you know for instance the US government was involved in housing discrimination um or the 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 way that the medical system the way that doctors were really instrumental in promoting ideas about racial hierarchy um the the more deeply I really understood and saw how this discrimination plays out today. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, this is kind of maybe an unconventional idea for yeah. training, but I would love to see someone study the impact of having a group of people really deeply study history, study the history of, if we're talking about anti-Black racism, study the history of that in this country, and then see how it affects their decision-making and their behavior and their um, choices afterwards.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that that has definitely been something that has helped me understand the lengths to which racism has affected our country. Like I, I imagine that you're for, I can't remember what year it is, but it's, it's the, I think it's in the 1800s, the Chinese Exclusion Act Yes, for, for the United States. And we've talked about that here on the podcast before. I remember hearing that and going like, you mean for like, I think it's 80 years for 80 years." No one from there could come to the United States, and and you go back and it's like they they literally couldn't come here until like sixty years ago.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I had a really just like a deeply transformative moment. I think I even talk about it. Maybe I can find this section. Yeah. Yeah. Um. In that la. In that conclusion, where. Um. I was I was looking deeply at the the history of um, scientific racism and the way that the scientific community used its resources to try to promote the idea of white superiority and put this in all of the scientific journals and the academic and the medical journals, and there was um, I was I was reading about how this played out in medicine, and there was a, a doctor from Chicago in. Um, I believe it was the, the late 1800s, mm-hmm. wrote that white society, quote, should help along the process of extinction, unquote, um, because African-Americans were diseased and, quote, naturally headed toward annihilation. Oof. This is a doctor. I mean, we venerate doctors. Yeah. So the idea that that the most venerated authorities were promoting and substant, you know, trying to substantiate these ideas is just, it, you know, it was chilling. I lit, I felt like a chill run through my body mm-hmm. reading this, and I think that kind of grappling with history is so, it's just essential. It can be transformative.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and especially whenever like I, I've I've done this recently, like you start like tracing back like to the 1800s that you said, and you think back to like our parents. And then our grandparents, and then our great grandparents, and you go, the 1800s was not that long ago from our lineage or from our family trees, which yes. means that our our great grandparents were affected by it, or our, and our great and our grandparents were raised by our great grandparents and all of that stuff. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. It's deep.
0: Yeah. Uh, another thing that you talk about in there is. Uh, is sometimes you say, you know, that the ideal thing is that hearts, you know, change and that we become less biased through that. But you also say that sometimes that's just not going, like, realistically, that's not going to happen. And so sometimes instead of talking about changing people's hearts, you talk about changing processes yes. as well. Can
1: you talk about that approach? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean the I I tried to come at every possible approach. You, and you like... really did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so there's changing minds, changing hearts, you know, changing interactions, changing our categories that we have in our minds so that we see each other with more complexity and nuance mm-hmm. and reality. And yeah, and then there you know there are approaches that sort of bypass that interpersonal that that personal change and really focus on changing structures and processes to just make it harder for bias to actually play out, kind of squeeze it to the side. So it doesn't really have room. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the approaches that I think is really promising, that I saw a lot of good, good data to support is um, in medicine and healthcare, the checklist approach. So this has been used, there's a a book by Atul Gawande called The Checklist Manifesto, where he talks about the way that checklists can be used to remind people in healthcare to do all of the necessary steps for a particular scenario, particular procedure. And it's been shown to cut down on complications and things like infections. And it just creates like a safer, higher quality environment for the patients. And what I was curious about was whether this could possibly be used to also reduce disparities.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, one of the you know one of the really interesting stories uh, that I uncovered was something that happened at Johns Hopkins Hospital, where uh, the trauma department was trying to improve the quality of trauma care, and the problem that they were running into was that patients were developing blood clots at a really high rate. And blood clots are really dangerous. They can be even you know, fatal, pulmonary embolism. And so this particular trauma surgeon who was looking at this decided to institute a checklist to try to improve blood clot prevention. He found that only a third of the highest risk patients were getting the appropriate blood clot prevention that they they needed. It was just kind of, people were slipping through the cracks. They weren't getting the right preventive treatment. And so he and his team put together this checklist approach so that doctors, when they were evaluating incoming patients, they would have to go check, check, check through this computerized list. And then the algorithm would spit out a suggestion about what, what kind of treatment, blood clot prevention this person should get. So it, it did what it was meant to do. It did actually improve blood clot prevention treatment for everybody and blood clots mm-hmm. went down and you know, outcomes got better. It, it really succeeded in the way that it was intended to succeed. But what it also did, they discovered when they ran the data, uh, was that it also eliminated gender disparity mm-hmm. between the treatment mm-hmm. that men got and the treatment that women got and before this intervention women were almost 50% more likely to miss out on appropriate treatment compared to men after this intervention women and men both got the appropriate treatment at really high rates and at the same rate so that's an example of a process changing you know they didn't yeah. actually get doctors to sort of reduce their own you know internalized yeah. sexism or anything like that they actually just changed the processes that they use to make a decision, and it had this really beneficial consequence.
0: Yeah. Would you have any it, like, what do you think that looks like? Because for someone who's listening and they're like, okay, I'm not a doctor, but I, yeah, you know, I do want to reduce it. Any advice for how to go about creating that checklist or that process that can eliminate that bias?
1: Yeah. You know, one one approach that um, that that someone shared with me. Uh, she's she's a woman who um, runs a business. And she noticed was that when people would reach out to her to have coffee or, you know, for an informational interview, um, just to kind of like get, get to know her or seek some mentorship, she would find her. So she was a a white woman who was educated at a private West coast university. Mm -hmm. And she found when she started paying attention, she noticed that those were the people that she responded to the most. Mm. People who Mm -hmm. were kind of like her, you know, white women who went to private universities. Yeah, And so she's noticed this, she had this biased reaction. Um, So what she did was she created a checklist for herself. And she decided on, because she couldn't meet with everybody who reached out to her, Mm -hmm. but she decided, okay, what are the, what are the criteria that I really think are important in order to make an hour, you know, this afternoon to meet with this person. Mm-hmm. And she came up with, with a, a, a set of criteria yeah. and then she would use that to decide whether she could meet with someone or not, rather than this kind of gut instinct, which is like, well, I, I'm just going to kind of meet with people who remind me of myself.
0: Yeah. Hmm. yeah. So that's... that's a
1: way that we could use, you know, we can all use checklists oh, yeah. when we're making decisions about people.
0: Yeah. That's great. Uh, another thing c- closely related to that is the idea which you touch on, which is affirmative action as well. And you have this quote in there, and you mentioned how uh, stigma against marginalized groups, it seems that it exists with or without affirmative action. Can you talk to me just about that dynamic and how we can go about making it more, more effective so that, like, mm. bias does not factor into the decision, or at least not as much?
1: Hmm. Yeah, you know, I I was really interested in looking at um at the consequences of affirmative action in terms of in terms of unconscious bias or discrimination. And what I found, you know, one of the big one of sort of like the arguments against affirmative action that that people will make if they don't agree with it as an approach, is they'll say, well, if someone uh, you know, gets admission to a university or gets a particular job in the presence of an affirmative action program and they belong to that group that's benefiting from affirmative action, then people aren't going to think that they really deserve to be there. They're going to think that that, mm-hmm. that person is there not because they have, you know, the qualifications, but because they were brought in, you know, with with less qualification than than someone who isn't part of that group. So that's sort of an argument that people often make to say well we you know we shouldn't have affirmative action. But what I found is that actually that that can be true there are people who will have that belief, you know, um in the in the presence of affirmative action, but when when people uh from a marginalized group are part of a university or an organization that doesn't have affirmative action, mm-hmm. that stigma is still there. People mm-hmm. still have that feeling. Yeah. So, so, you know, it kind of cancels out the argument like that, that stigma is there whether or not there's affirmative action or not. And so, you know, in that sense, it seems, well, you know, my, where where I come down yeah. on this is that I think it's, it, it isn't, you know, this is an important and useful approach to creating more justice and, mm-hmm. you know, righting historical wrongs in many cases. Um, but that that isn't to say that those, that sort of devaluation doesn't still have a chance of being present. It still could, but it, it often is there even without the presence of affirmative action. Mm-hmm.
0: So how would you go about like talking about affirmative action because of what you mentioned like sometimes that can be um, like people could just get emotional and and upset about mm-hmm. it. any advice for talking about it and is it just as simply as just mentioning what you were saying of like I don't know give me tell me yeah tell me what you think about that.
1: well you know this this was actually quite personal for me because I went to so for the first two years of my college, I went to a school that had an affirmative action program for women. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I uh, because it was a a science school, I went to MIT for two years, and they were really trying to increase the number of women there. And I remember being there and feeling this kind of sense that some men thought that women were there just because of affirmative action and that mm-hmm. we didn't really have the same qualifications you know what i what i and so i you know i struggle with this and i think where i have landed is that that this is like a sort of and then this is a tension that just exists. Like yeah. if, if you have a program that is designed to benefit a particular group and right historical wrongs and increase you know equity and and justice and, and diversity, um, there might be this this fallout, you know, there there might be these negative opinions that other people have. So in a sense, you know, it's it's too bad because it it to some extent harms the those who are the beneficiaries of affirmative action in this case the example that i gave you know women were i think in some ways harmed by these negative attitudes that other people had on the other hand because there's been so much inequity i think these programs are really important and so i think we have to hold both of those things in our minds at the same time like Mm -hmm. a program can be really important and effective and also have some unintended consequences and that's just the messy world that we live in, yeah. and I think we just have to be honest about it.
0: Yeah, that that another idea that comes to my mind, which I mentioned earlier, is inclusion as well, and that can be um, a little bit of a nebulous word to wherever you know people have a bunch of different definitions of it. Um, and I think that what you talk about in there like brought a lot of clarity about mm. it to me of some of the different features of what okay, this is what inclusion actually looks like. Can you mm-hmm. talk about those and what what it looks like?
1: Yeah, you know, there there there's so many different definitions of inclusion. It can be a little bit difficult to to think about um or talk about because people have so many different ways of of describing it. You know, the defi- and a couple of the definitions that I found really helpful were um one is from a researcher named Lisa Lisa Nishi who who said inclusion really has like three key features. Um Fair practices—that's the foundation. Like you have to have fair and unbiased practices in order for for people for for there to even be a chance of people feeling included. Like you have to feel like you know things are fair. Another is a welcoming attitude and a respect for people's full selves, whole selves. You know, one of the challenges I think that that often um, people face is is a feeling that they are not able to bring their full selves, that they have to leave some aspect of themselves at the door and almost compartmentalize um, and just bring one particular narrow aspect of, of themselves to work. So real inclusion, I think, creates space for people to really bring their full selves, to feel like they can be their full, hu- you know, bring their full humanity, their mm-hmm. full multidimensional selves to the, the place that they live and work and participate in. Mm. And another is really a desire and a real thirst for learning from other perspectives for learning from different perspectives because it's one thing to say okay you know here's a person from a historically marginalized group you are welcome and we are going to celebrate your birthday and give you a birthday card and we are going to um you know make you feel like you belong here but there's you know it's another thing to say we actually want and need your perspective. Like your perspective is essential to this organization, to its future, to its ability to thrive. And so those, I think all three of those are really important mm-hmm. elements.
0: Yeah, and and I think pretty close to directly after that, you talk about how it's possible for someone to feel valued and respected, but not actually be included. Is that tied to that last feature that you were talking about or is it a little bit different?
1: Yeah, 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 I think so. You know, some some of the scholars, um, I'm thinking about one scholar in particular I spoke to who said there's a difference between feeling welcome and actually having influence. Mm-hmm. And full, I mean, what I just talked about, those are important elements of inclusion, but we, we, we need to go a step further and look at who actually has influence in a particular organization who has mm-hmm. power who's actually making decisions whose decisions are acted on you know whose ideas are acted on yeah. there's there's a difference between just having one's ideas listened to and actually having one's ideas acted on and i think full inclusion is the latter you know full inclusion means that people actually have power in an organization have you know have the ability to influence the future of the organization. And that's where I think some organizations get a little bit stuck, you know, like, yeah. oh, well, okay, this might mean that things are going to change yeah. and that that can be scary.
0: Mm. Yeah. It even brings to my, my mind of things like, well, we we love women here, mm-hmm. but it, just what you were saying, well, do they have any influence over anything? Or, you know, we love, you know, older people, younger people, whatever. Okay. But do they have any influence
1: Exactly <laughs> over
0: it? Mm. Yeah, I love that. Um, another thing that, and you, you mentioned it briefly, but you have this quote in there and you say, an attitude of learning and growth is what distinguishes organizations that achieve la- or achieve lasting in- inclusion. And I would just love um, just to hear from you of, you know, this is the Learner's Corner podcast. And so mm. I'm always fascinated by learning stuff. I would love to hear from you, maybe what makes that such a significant factor And something that could help us maintain that uh, curiosity Mm. as well. You
1: know, I think there are a few reasons that learning, uh, having a mindset of learning is so important. Mm -hmm. One is that anytime you have an environment where there's a diversity of people, of people from different backgrounds, people from different experiences life life experiences perspectives you're going to have the possibility of conflict mm-hmm. you're going to have the possibility of clashing right yeah. because you have different perspectives yep but if you have a mindset of learning and you feel you you really believe that differences are something that are that differences are are elements that can be learned from then you can turn conflict into an opportunity for growth. Yeah, Learning is like this, you know, the learning mindset is like this magic. I don't know, like this magic element that allows, I don't know, maybe it's like an alchemy, you know, that allows for conflict to be turned into transformation or growth or like progress. If you don't have that learning mindset, then conflict becomes terrifying. Then conflict needs to be avoided at all costs Mm. because oh no, like there's a conflict. Ah, we got to shut it down. We, we have to make sure people aren't yeah. hurt. We got to, you know, we got to control yeah. this. We got to move on, hide it, move on. And that totally blocks the possibility of conflict actually being like a fuel for change and, and growth. Mm.
0: What would you, what advice would you give to maintaining that learning mindset or even just expanding that?
1: Well, one, one thing, and I, there's, there's a, another, um, there's a, a researcher who I will recommend that you interview because this is his like whole area yeah. of expertise. He's amazing. Um, I would say humility is really yeah. important. Feeling that when you go into a context of diversity, this is something Martin Davidson talks about. Who's a, who's a business professor. When you go into a context of diversity, your working assumption has to be, I actually don't know what's going on here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to deeply and humbly except that I actually <laughs> have no idea what's going on. And I need to be open to learning things and experiencing things I've never expected. Yeah, I think another is actually, and this is really hard, I think, in in a culture that's very punitive. Like, I think our culture is quite punitive, American culture. Another another thing that can really help is seeing mistakes not as a sign of like moral failure, but as a sign of learning. Mm-hmm. Like when we make a mistake, it's because we're trying something that we don't really know how to do. Yeah. And it's an opportunity to to try something different next time. So I think if, but that's, it's really hard for us, I think not to just like excoriate and criticize ourselves when we make mistakes. But if we can, instead of feeling like, oh, this is just a sign that I'm a terrible person and I need to hide this and I, you know, I can't share what I've done because it's so embarrassing and shameful. If we can move away from that attitude toward, you know what? I tried something. It didn't work out. I screwed up. Okay. Now I know I have more information for next time and now I can try something different and maybe I'll have a different outcome next time. I think that really helps keep this mindset of learning going.
0: Mm, Yeah. Who's the psychologist that you were going to mention?
1: Oh, um, his name is Martin Davidson. So he, so he is a, a business professor, um, at the University of Virginia, and his one of his areas of focus is the learning mindset, actually, and the role that learning plays in organizations.
0: Oh, okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to check him out. Yeah. Okay, um, just a couple other things I wanna, wanna ask you about is uh, you mentioned representation as well in the power of representation of how that can, that can help as it pertains to this conversation. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Absolutely. I mean, role models are incredibly important. You know, yeah. we saw in, um, and one of the stories I tell is about, uh, a university department that really increased its, re- its representation of women, um, engineers. And it had this like massive effect on the women students in that department. And one idea is that role models are almost like an inoculation against stereotypes. You know, if you're part of a marginalized group, you're getting a lot of, you know, you're, you're learning a lot of stereotypes about your group. But if you see people who are defying those stereotypes and who are thriving in a field where they're, you know, they're not very well represented, it's almost, it's like a vaccine kind of against those, um, against those stereotypes. So it really... Yeah, it ab- I mean, so many of the people I interviewed for this book described how just having like one person that they could identify with in a role that they aspired to was hugely important.
0: Yeah. Mm. Well, I got one other thing I want to ask you about. But before that, I always just love asking, is there anything just top of mind that we haven't talked about pertaining to this conversation that you want to make sure that we mention?
1: Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that is often overlooked When we talk about bias and discrimination, is the way that it also benefits the people who are trying to change? Yeah. So, I was thinking, you know, before this conversation, I was thinking about um, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Yeah. You know, now I see through a glass darkly. Yeah. Then face to face, now I know partly. As soon I shall know fully, as, as as we are known. Yeah. And. I think one of the challenges with bias is it, it's like we're seeing through a glass darkly. We're seeing each other, not fully as we are known, but in this kind of hallucination, you know, this sort of blurred, dark lens. And what that does is it blocks us from being able to have really meaningful, trusting relationships with one another. Mm. I mean, if I see you through a lens of bias, I can't really know you. And if you see me through a lens of bias, I can't really trust you yeah. or be myself with you. So I think that we have a lot to gain. You know, those of us who carry these biases, which I think is all of us, honestly, yeah. Um, I think we have a lot to gain through through working through them, through losing them, through being able to actually see the world clearly, see one another clearly, and develop those kind of meaningful, trusting relationships that are so important you know to us as as humans
0: yeah i i love that thought um the last thing i want to close with and you you touch about this in your in the final chapter is um much of this conversation can especially about bias can be focused on the people who we have bias against and and one part of the conversation that isn't talked a whole lot about is the people who actually have the bias and sometimes Mm -hmm. they gain benefits from Having that bias, and as you also briefly touch on, is that there can be a harm as well for the person who holds the bias. Can you talk just about that dynamic, as well, just as we wrap up?
1: Absolutely. Um, Certainly, you know, structurally in our society, people, many people, benefit from these kinds of um, biases, and that that is really. You know we we need to recognize that as well and then i think there's there are also serious harms um that happen that occur uh to people who hold biases as well and i i don't mean to equate the kind of harms that are experienced by people on the receiving end of bias and people on the perpetuating end you know there there's not a comparison there i don't i don't mean to mm-hmm. suggest some kind of equivalence but i think that if we I think if we ignore the way that bias harms those who harbor biases then you know we can fall into kind of like a savioristic mentality that this is just you know working on my biases is 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 an act of beneficence or charity mm-hmm. toward others when in fact we ourselves who hold biases are also harmed we're you know this is an interact this is a we're deeply interconnected to one yeah. another And yeah, I mean, some of the, harm. there's so many harms, you know, some that I just, that I just mentioned feeling disconnected, not really being able to see reality clearly operating in kind of a hallucination rather than really regarding and perceiving reality. Um, There's a lot of disconnection and alienation and isolation that can happen when we, beholden to our biases and when we see the world through a biased lens Hmm. so i think what we have to gain is just enormous you know we have the positive we have the opportunity to not see through a glass darkly anymore you know to see fully and to know others fully as we are known you know as paul says in his letter to the corinthians so i think yeah i mean i just i just think there's so much to gain from this from this work and i hope that I hope that people reading the book feel a sense of empowerment and excitement and possibility um, from being able to engage with the world in, in a more loving and life giving way.
0: Yeah. Uh, And I guess the the last question I want to ask you is that, you know, sometimes this conversation could be very overwhelming as well, because especially whenever you think of, you know, all, all of the societal implications and everything. Um, But what might be like a, just a good first step for someone who's like, yep i i'm I'm on this journey. I want to continue to eliminate my bias. I want, to, yeah. I, want to, I want to see more clearly, just as yeah. you, you mentioned what what would you say to them? Just for getting started
1: one one way that I think we can all get started is seek out opportunities to collaborate with people who are different than we are. Mm-hmm. So it's not, I, you know, it can be helpful to just get to know people who are different, That that's important. But what I found and what the research suggests is that it's even more powerful if you are working on a project together with, with someone who is different um, than you are. So if there are opportunities, you know, seek out opportunities to, work on something like a shared goal. Maybe mm-hmm. it's you know a volunteer project that, that, that you're working on with someone who belongs to a different group. That can be really powerful. Um, so, so, so seeking people who are different and then actually showing up in a way where you're equals and where you're working together on a shared goal, that is a, a really powerful way of, of combating our own mental stereotypes. Mm,
0: awesome. Well, Jessica, I know that people are going to want to pick up your book, The End of Bias and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things?
1: Oh, absolutely. Oh, and I should mention, because it does sound pretty um, intense, the, the, the title of the book is The End of Bias, but the subtitle is A Beginning. Yeah. <laughs> so it is just a beginning. Yes. Um, uh, ways that you can find me. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so you can sign up for my newsletter, which is called Who We Are to Each Other. Um, you can sign up on my website, jessicanordell.com. The book is just out in paperback, so it yeah. should be easy to find in any bookstore or online. And you can always um, contact me through my website as well. There's a there's a contact um, form where you can email me directly um, with thoughts, feedback, questions. I'm eager to hear from readers.
0: Awesome. Well, Jessica, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us.
1: Oh, thanks, Caleb. I really appreciate it.
0: You know, I think coming out of that conversation, one of the biggest takeaways and learnings and just reminders for me of this conversation is that this isn't something that we graduate from. You know, overcoming our bias is something that we probably deal with all of our lives, and we become better at it, and we recognize it more, and we get better of not letting it impact our judgments and our thoughts and our behaviors as much. However, it can be something that stays with us our entire lives. And just realizing that we may never reach a point to where we graduate from it, which means that we always need to be on the watch out for how our biases are affecting us and how they can change from time to time as well because our perspectives change from time to time. And that's just part of, part of life, of learning and growing and learning how we can be better and how we can, and just learning of how our bias is getting in the way of helping other people feel like they can trust us. Because sometimes our bias affects whether or not people trust us or are willing to, to come to us as well or willing to give us the feedback about our bias. Sometimes, you know, how we respond to people's feedback of our bias can help us or will impact whether or not they trust us as well. And so I think just this idea of this is just a lifelong journey that we never graduate from is probably my biggest takeaway from just this whole conversation. And there's so many things uh, in this. It was a truly wonderful conversation and it was a great book and made me think about so, so much and if you enjoyed it as well you could pick up the book and if you're still looking for things to continue to enjoy things that you're learning from one of the best ways or one of the best things that you could do is subscribe to my newsletter to where i give you all of the things that i am learning from the things that i'm learning about as well and whether that be podcasts or music or videos or tv shows or whatever it might be all of my best recommendations are found in that newsletter it's for free. All you have to do is subscribe and it will be sent to your email each and every single week. And so without anything else, I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating music for this podcast. Thank you to Jessica for joining me for a wonderful conversation in the learner's corner. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.